It's interesting to look at Frosty Returns as a story that features a cat prominently. Bones. Bones the cat. Yep. Yeah. Bones. Constantly troublemaking, a part of Twitchell's whole scheme, going to be a prince when Twitchell's king. I wish there was someone who could deal with this nefarious wintertime cat. When you say a, like an enemy to a cat, I immediately think of a dog. Yeah, but wouldn't the dog get chilly? I'm Juliet. And I'm Catherine. And this is I'll Be Pod for Castmas, where we make bad jokes about chili dogs. And we also talk about other stuff. Like, uh, we do a close reading of lowbrow Christmas pop culture in conversation with a piece of classic literature. On this episode, we're talking about the 1992 Christmas special, Frosty Returns, through the lens of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus. If you haven't yet, we recommend you go back to listen to the previous episode, but why don't we start with a synopsis of each of these texts? Brilliant idea. You want to start with Frankenstein? Sure. The synopsis of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. A man on a boat in the north sees one man on a sled and then rescues another. The rescued man, Victor Frankenstein, relates that he created the first man and has rooted since. The first man, the being, lashes out out of isolation and desperation. The rescued man dies and the man on the boat, Walton, confronts the being. Most Juliet synopsis. I don't know if it's the use of the word rude or the fact that like 50% of that is just about the man on the boat. But I loved it. It was accurate. I I loved it. Here's my synopsis for Frosty Returns. So, the 1992 made-for-TV special. Frosty Returns, like Frankenstein, is set in the cold northern climate, but more of an upper midwestern suburb than the Arctic Circle. Polly is a kid magician with only one friend, Charles, who she plans to saw in half, until a gust of wind blows her magician's hat away and it lands on Frosty, the snowman who comes to life. Polly is very excited to have friend number two, but unfortunately, this Midwestern suburban town has become very anti-snow. So our villain is the power and money-hungry Mr. Twitchell, whose aerosol invention, Summer Wheeze, immediately eliminates snow, thus making the need for shoveling obsolete. The parents of this town are obsessed with this product, and that trickles down to the kids, who get excited about having a longer summer vacation because there's less snow. Charles gives a lecture in his class about the dangers of summer wheeze, because without snow, there's less water, which means life is in danger. He gets ignored. The town just goes nuts over summer bees, which puts Frosty's life in danger. Holly finds her voice at the annual winter carnival and presents Frosty to the community. Through the power of song, the town comes together and realizes that snow is magical, and they crown Frosty their king, and therefore summer bees is no longer financially viable. 
So Mr. Twitchell converts his business to making winter weather gear, and he rides off in a sleigh with Holly, and they all live happily ever after, except for Frosty, who disappears to go spread winter joy elsewhere. Mm. So, <laughs> what do these two have in common, Juliet? <laughs> Let's talk themes. Yeah. <laughs> Other than the yeah um (laughs) i think one thing that these two have in common is a kind of focus or psychology or interiority of loneliness yes definitely this idea of like what it means to have one friend versus no friends like that it's not one versus many although like mr twitchell wants everyone to praise him but that's not even to be his friend he just wants to rule them like the idea of just having no friends versus like hey could i have one friend please is a really big leap yeah i mean when holly first meets frosty i think she says something like oh i only have one friend and frosty says one friend is plenty which is i think a lovely sentiment but then when we think about Frankenstein, do mm-hmm. you think one friend is plenty in the context of that novel? Like, would Frankenstein's being agree that one friend is plenty? Here's a mild point of contention, maybe, because Victor's m- major fear in some ways is that the answer to that is no. And so much of what Victor ends up doing in the kind of third act of the novel is say, well, I don't want the being to go from one friend to many friends to replacing the human homo sapien species. He's worried that if he gives the being one friend, they will reproduce and take over the world. Right. Whereas the being is like, I just need one friend. Can I please just have one person who I can be with, as we mentioned last episode, because of thinking like, well, if I have an Eve, therefore, etc. But also, even just outside of that, it's like one person to show me compassion would mean that I'm not alone. One friend is plenty, is is the being's argument, is the thing that the being is trying to say. And like, I think a big undercurrent is, well, Victor, you could have been that one friend and you weren't. Fucked <laughs> it up. With Victor, though, he kind of gets his one friend in the form of Walton. Uh, when the book begins, Victor has lost pretty much everybody. So he's out seeking revenge on the being because he blames the being for all of his unhappiness. And mm-hmm. Walton just immediately has a man crush on him and is like, or like a friend crush or like, I don't know, just immediately like obsessed with Frankenstein. This guy's so cool. I want to be his friend. And that's not enough for Frankenstein. He tells Walton his whole life story and is still at the end like, yeah, no, like I, you're fine, dude. But like, I still got to kill this guy. Mm-hmm. Whereas I, I do think for Walton, that one friend does make the world of difference because he's surrounded by all of this crew, but he's like, again, in not a friendship or relationship with them. So he's hashtag writing a letter to his sister. 
So be- mm-hmm. I, I'm gonna I'm just gonna throw it out there. Victor is the only person who one friend is not plenty. Does that make him the monster of Frankenstein the novel? Yes, and kind of surprising how similar then Frankenstein and Twitchell, who Twitchell has a friend. Twitchell has Bones the cat. But, but is Bones his friend or is Bones just his minion? He kind of bosses <sighs> Bones around and like tells him to go do stuff for him. There's not really... Yeah, but there. Victor seems to do that to basically everyone. <laughs> <laughs> True. Uh, I, I straight up don't remember Victor's friend's name. Oh my god, uh, the boyfriend. What was his name? Henry Clerval. There we go. Clerval, yeah. Clerval. Uh, boyhood friend. Mm. So. So the being wants a friend who will be similar to him, right? Yes. The being wants someone who can be a reflection of him in some ways and fears that anyone who's too dissimilar from him will reject him because that's his experience so far. Yeah. Which, okay. So to tie this back into frosty returns, we have Holly whose best friend is a kid named Charles and she actually kind of belittles their friendship because they are very dissimilar. Holly is a magician and is obsessed with magic and performing and wearing her cool hat. And Charles is a scientist and he believes in things that are real and measurable. Charles is kind of a nerd. I love Charles. I do too. (laughs) I think Charles is relatable for basically anybody. Uh, Holly has some relatableness. I think many of us, dreamed of being magicians at some stage of childhood (laughs) was that ever you yeah absolutely i was a magician's assistant for a little bit in high school oh so cool that would make me more like charles than like (laughs) than like holly in this case charles is such a great friend even though he doesn't believe in magic he still crawls into a box and is like okay saw me in half go for it uh (laughs) I actually want to dig into that a little bit. This idea of like science and magic set up as this like binary apart from each other. You know how Charles defines science, like things that can be explained versus things that can't be explained. He has an explanation for like, well, snow is necessary because that's a big part of how fresh water gets around and like the long-term effects throughout the year are really important to this. Whereas Frosty appears and there's not an explanation other than, you know, you put the hat on him and now he's singing and dancing. Oh, sure. There must've been some magic in that old silk hat they found, right? Yeah. So what, what is magic though? If science is something that can be explained, Magic kind of has an explanation. It's the hat, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to pull on a classic quotable phrase that really for me is, is helpful in discussing magic, which is magic's what magic does. Magic is what magic does? Yeah, basically. Part of this is because magic doesn't actually exist. (laughs) Um, So when we identify something as... 
Yeah, yeah. When we identify something as magic, it has to like do something for us to be able to be like, oh, that's the magic thing. And I think there's a way you could break that down as magic as a known thing happening by unexpected means, uh, which is, you know, stage magic. You see a thing, you're like, oh, wow, how was something like, you know, a rabbit was able to be pulled out of a hat by some magic means, this thing that I know happened, happened, but I like, I'm, I'm missing some like causal point. Uh, a man walked in one door and walked out of another door on the other side of the stage. That's incredible. Is that a reference to the prestige? That is a reference to the prestige. I knew it. Like, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, this known thing happening by unexpected means. Oh, it happened by magic. The other way of thinking about it that I'd like to pull in our brief foray into studying Latin American magical realism and talk about magic not as a thing, not as a known thing happening by unexpected means, but rather an entirely unknown thing coming into reality, uh, which we sometimes call the fantasia. Which is often, you know, one way of thinking about is an intrusion into reality of something magical, which then, you know, has some effects on the world. And by magical, we do mean, like, deeply unreal in a way that I feel like Frosty kind of is deeply unreal, (laughs) you know? Yeah, because I was going to ask, like, where does Frosty fall? Is he the known thing a snowman that through unexpected means becomes something else but but yeah it sounds like a man made out of snow that can move and dance and talk and sing mm-hmm. this sort of fantastic element i think to me that is is the fantastic element that is that type of magic in part because uh, like Charles goes up and is like, is this happening by batteries? Like I don't I fundamentally don't understand how this could be a trick. Whereas like sawing somebody in half, it's like, okay, well yeah, you're you're doing some illusion here, right? You know? Yeah. Well, so to bring in Frankenstein again, since that mm-hmm. is very famously a science fiction work and sure. mm-hmm. like the body of Frankenstein is considered you know, one of the first um, science fictions, because there's sort of a scientific explanation, even mm-hmm. though we don't get it in the text. But f- because we've been talking about Frankenstein and Frosty in, in similar ways, because they, they're these creatures that come to life magically. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, is it fair to think of Frankenstein as more of a fantasy than a science fiction? Or is that not even a useful, like, categorization for that book? I think we run out of useful categorization when we try to do that type of reading, but it's possible that somebody else who's versed in a different, you know, history of science fiction would be able to answer that much better than, than I could. I, I think instead, you know, instead of trying to unpack Frankenstein, using Frankenstein as that lens to look at this, I'd like, instead of looking at Frosty to look at Summer Wheeze, this, aerosol spray that uh you know just removes snow period okay that's a better example because well that's an example of 
is it science or is it magic? Because Charles doesn't seem to have a problem with Summer Wheeze. I mean, he does like morally and ethically, but in terms mm-hmm. of it as an invention, he accepts that like there's an explanation for it. He, like we never seem to doubt that Summer Wheeze is just a creation that exists in this world and like makes sense for this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also a creation that's like doing incredible harm to the community that the person who created it was not really thinking about the big picture when he brought it into this world. Right. And so I think this might be where we depart from Charles's binary of magic and science, that which can be explained, that which can't. I, I, and I'd like to suggest a different kind of literary one, perhaps, which is the idea of... A binary between practice and hard work versus shortcuts. Ooh, that like there that. are things that you put in the effort to get a result and you're kind of there every step of the way. And then there are things that take you from the beginning to the end without crossing any of the path in between. Oh, I like that. And so we actually see Holly's magic act as being in the former category. I mean, she's literally, she needs to practice it. That's something that she has to put in effort to be able to do, to be able to do you know, public speaking, to be able to pull off the trick song, Charles and Half and everything. And also the hard work that goes into learning science and paying attention and using critical thinking. And especially the hard work that goes into shoveling all of the snow and Ugh. going out there and doing that work but also being alongside other people doing that work. And singing about it. Yeah, and singing. Like, that's a joke, but it's also totally true. Because doing labor together to make our environments a little bit more livable and singing while we do it are, like, super inherently human things as are, like, practicing to get better at something. And so I think... Tying in each of these things is incredibly human. The the practice and the hard work, whether it's you know mental practice or social practice or physical practice, that is very human. And these shortcuts, especially like summer wees, are super not. Yeah, I like that. So instead of looking at magic and science in terms of what has an explanation, what does not. I think both Frankenstein and Frosty expect us to not really need an explanation. Mm-hmm. And like we talked about in our first episode, like instead of worrying about how did the monster come into being, we're just going to look at like what happens now that we have it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so like the danger of Summer Wheeze is the fact that it is a shortcut. It's something that somebody did not put in the hard work of understanding before bringing it into the world. And it's not something that requires that like community labor or the hard work and that's what makes it problematic it's you just spray it the snow is gone you don't need to think about it you just live your life and it has all of these horrible consequences in the future that you don't see in the moment when you're using it and that's the appeal and the horror of it is that it's so Exactly. And like, some of the have a shortcut. Don't worry about yeah. the future. Even though totally is a technology, right? 
yes, it is. It is certainly a technology, but it has the like in the interaction that the user has with it. It has that shortcut. It has that like magical nature to it, and that that you know, taking those shortcuts actually come with consequences. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of want to pull Frankenstein in here again, mm-hmm. which is last time I know we said we weren't particularly interested in unpacking Frankenstein as artificial intelligence, a topic that is dealt with a lot. Yeah. Or a topic that is discussed a lot. Still but, true. But I'm curious yeah. where you're going with this. <laughs> well, many people view the modern Prometheus as an analog for artificial intelligence. I think the real thing we're seeing, quote, AI do and be right now in the real world, like not in fiction, in our real world, the AI stuff all around us is much more similar to Summer Wee's. It's this inhuman shortcut with no care or even curiosity towards long-term consequences and with no care for what is actually causing this with no care for what is actually shortcutting you from this point A to whatever point E you end up with. Mm, And what the implications are in the long run of what happens with point F and point G and all the like the Mm -hmm. inevitable repercussions. Mm -hmm. That's ominous. (laughs) Well, because the people, the people of Beanborough (laughs) want clear sidewalks, right? That's what they want. So they assume that's the destination. And we typically arrive at that destination by shoveling snow. And this product allows us to arrive at the destination of clear sidewalks without needing to do the shoveling snow. But we forget that, like, clear sidewalks is not the end of the story. (laughs) It's, It's the beginning of the walk to school it's part of a broader picture yeah i mean i i'm sympathetic towards the wanting the shortcut because as miss carbuncle says isn't there a line about how you can like slip and fall on the ice and then that means substitute teachers come in she's the teacher who everybody hates and she's complaining about the snow because there is a danger to the shoveling for sure in I do think that that kind of comes down to, well, the suburbs are also not good for this. <laughs> the suburbs are not good for, you know, environmental setups of a variety of different, you know, responding to different yeah. routine climate or climate emergencies. The suburbs are not good for, oh, I got injured trying to deal with this hostile environment around me. Is there anyone who can actually help me? You know, that's so, not, yeah. <laughs> those things are, aren't good. You're left trying to solve the problems of the suburbs with something that's going to cause even bigger problems. Sure. In this case, Charles is the one who points out um, if there's no snow, then it doesn't melt, and then there's not enough water on Earth, and then there's not enough water to support life. So he's making that big, passionate plea about how if you use summer weeds, eventually all of life on this planet will be doomed. Which... Yeah, super depressing. But um, thankfully... They just sort of laugh at him in that scene and, like, boo him. But, but thankfully... Yeah? There's a happy is, ending? Well, yes, because 
it's not Charles who has to deal with everything. Frosty the Snowman shows up. Oh, bless Frosty the Snowman. Right, and Frosty is able to rally the community behind a common cause in a way that Charles, with all of his, you know, facts and and very well-researched rapport, is unable to. Mm-hmm. And Frosty has this line that, you know, all of these things, you know, summer wheeze and everything that Twitchell has to bear are no match for Mother Nature. Mm. And I think that's an interesting thing to think about when we think about... So Frosty shows up and is magic, right? Like, that overthrows everyone's belief. You don't need the scientific explanation. Like, hypothetically, these people will then eventually hear Charles's explanation. But for now, they're just like, actually, I do like snow because I like the sensory experience of being around it, not the, like, long-term stuff. But perhaps that's what people need. Perhaps that's what Mother Nature provides to, like, defend herself. And so Frosty is sent as, like, an avatar to, like, forestall or prevent or push back on this intrusion of this inhuman technology with no, you know, insight to the longer term. When you said avatar, I just had this flashback to you telling me about this play. (laughs) It's like an old play. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you mean... It's finally time to talk about the cherry orchard. Yes, go for it. Hit me with it. <laughs> Listeners may not know because I think it gets cut out of every recording. I'm constantly <laughs> trying to get Catherine to talk about the cherry orchard, which is a play by um Chuck up. Yeah, yes. It's a good play. I'm just personally neutral on it. And Julia Mm -hmm. is personally not neutral on it. (laughs) Sure. I think it's an okay comedy, but (laughs) I think one of the really important lessons of The Cherry Orchard is nature will not actually send us an avatar. Like Frosty. Like Frosty the Snowman, which might sound like simple. You're like, yeah, of course, Frosty the Snowman isn't going to show up. But if you talk to people about, for instance, climate emergencies, there's a general sort of like, oh, well, we'll figure some technology out that will save us, right? Or... Yeah. I don't know, maybe it's just the the spheres that I find myself struggling in all the time. But it really does feel like many people have an underlying unspoken belief that like King Richard the Lionhearted is going to show up and fix a problem if it, if it gets bad enough. You know what I mean? Like, like, or, yeah, and be this like deus ex, but there won't actually be one. Like nature or, is not sending an avatar to us. In the cherry orchard, yeah, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, if not nature, then like capitalism is going to step in and the right innovation will, you know, just kind of erase and solve all of the problems. And I don't know, like, you know, maybe we will figure out a bunch of stuff. I really do feel like there's this undercurrent of belief that, well, if things do get worse, there will be a thing that makes them better again. There'll be a natural resetting force because that's so 
intrinsic to so many of the stories that we like to tell, that we like to hear, that we like to engage with. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I really choose the cherry orchard as an important text when teaching economics and all sorts of fields is there is no avatar coming. We need to be the avatar. We need to think long-term to actually take things seriously beyond our literally immediate circumstances. Like, oh, I'm literally just cold right now. And the thing is, because if we don't, we will lose absolutely everything. And like everything, everything. (laughs) You're sounding a lot like Charles from (laughs) sure yeah I mean this is why I love to teach the cherry orchard and this might sound a little doomery but this is why I think Charles is important because he really does make the point which is accurate that we could do this thing we could just decide as a society to use summer wheeze and then it could just be the end like the end, the the end. Like no more humanity. No the snow equals everything. no life. No snow could genuinely equal. I mean, if you follow this through to its natural conclusion, and again, it feels like very like, why are you being so apocalyptic? Because it's like we could make the hard swerve wrong turn at any time and end life, end human life on this planet. Right. So like. Like, not in a fun way, but you only live once. Sure. And then, and then society is over. I Was that a natural yeah, It's funny, because you only live once is literally a quote from Frosty Returns. No, I was trying to bring that up. I think it's so funny when Frosty, towards the end, says, you only live once, and then weeks. Because we'll be back again someday. Don't worry, viewers. Frosty returns. But actually, you, you at home, uh, I hate to say this, but I'll be pod for Castmas is like every other piece of art. It's about confronting the fact that you too will die one day. Yeah. That's what my favorite <laughs> All art is about making peace with the fact that you and your loved ones will die eventually. Yeah. Including our podcast. (laughs) Catherine sounds like she's joking here, but that is a thing I say slightly too often. Specifically about art. I don't I don't say it in casual conversation, but like it it is a useful lens for for discussing most pieces of art, I think. No, and I genuinely believe it. it. It has changed the way I think about media because you can always trace it back to temporality and grief and coping with limited Mm -hmm. time this came out in 1992 right yeah did frosty returns invent yolo a hundred percent yes it's the first time i remember hearing that phrase yeah like it's wild to think about specifically with the wink Mm -hmm. hey so okay we're all gonna die however Frosty comes back one day. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So the same way you always talk about how all art is about death. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite pet theories about the world 
is that Frosty returns, and Frosty in general, is kind of a Christ figure. And I think this conversation is justification for that, because Frosty returns is Mm -hmm. all about Frosty coming back to tell us how to live. Oh, so he's like sacrificed himself, right? Yeah. He, I mean, he's a martyr, and in case the Christmas Christ vibe was not strong enough, he gets crowned king at the end. Oh, yeah, because Twitchell wanted to be king and everything, and Frosty's literally crowned king at the end of this story. So he's crowned king at the end christmas is all about the christ is king well frosty is also king which is kind of a poetic justice because as you mentioned earlier i think twitchell is like really money and power hungry and like he wants to be the king yeah like he not only has this like not like this ambition and this desire for money and everything, he also has this, like, really specific desire to be king. And I I want to use Frankenstein, actually, as our lens, rather than the Christ child for a moment. Uh, That is the premise of this podcast, so I approve. (laughs) Which is to look at Twitchell as the victor, Mm -hmm. uh, not, uh, not the winner, because, uh, of course, Frosty is the winner. Uh, but Victor, in the sense of Victor Frankenstein. And I think perhaps what makes Twitchell even more ominous than Victor Frankenstein is that he's a plutocrat with aspirations of regency and wealth accumulation, of course, rather than the son of a baron. Oh, so Victor Frankenstein is just, like, born rich. Um and born Twitchell, noble. And born noble. Twitchell is very much like also trying to play God. He, like like both Twitchell and Frankenstein are trying to overwrite Mother Nature and not really thinking long term about the moral implications of doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you mean by him being a plutocrat? Like I guess Frankenstein would be more of an aristocrat. Why do you think that's more ominous? So. There's a thing to talk about here, which I sometimes call the Scaramouche conundrum, because it's a particular idea, which is not a a flawless and unimpeachable idea, but it's one that I first encountered in Raphael Sabatini's Scaramouche. Which I have never read. Which is, it's an okay book. The the first line is quite famous. Um, He was born with a gift of laughter and a sense that the world was mad. Oh. I don't know it, but I like it. So, is it possible for there to be a good king? No. Sorry. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Is it possible for there to be the good son of a baron? Uh, Probably not. Probably not, right? (laughs) Probably not. But it is conceivably possible. Because when you're born to a particular power yes it is quite difficult but let's say you know a wild sequence of events leads 
you who would not normally be in the seat of power to inherit that seat of power. You might have other connections and preconceived ideals and ideologies that carry you forward that have not been crushed by the system around you. This is very rare, and I don't think it's good to pin our hopes upon it. I don't think we should assume that we only have good aristocrats or the good aristocrats we do have will be enough. But this is part of the conundrum because the hardworking business owner, right? Uh, the, the person who is slowly amassing wealth, Scaramouche is set in the French Revolution. It's a, it's a romance of the French Revolution is the subtitle of the, of the work. In one of the questions of the French Revolution, as most of the revolutions of the last several hundred years, unfortunately, is you have people who have power because of their title, because of their name, because of their aristocracy. And you have people who have money because of business interests, specifically business interests where they're able to extract wealth from the labor of others, extract wealth from others. I extract wealth through, you know, a variety of different, different means. And they want power commensurate to their wealth, whereas the aristocrats want wealth commensurate to their power. Eventually they get it, if they can pull off the revolution during the right social circumstances, for better or for worse. But However, kind of does. Sorry, go, go ahead. Is it possible for someone who derives their power from extracting wealth from others exclusively and recently, like personally, you know, yeah. uh, is it possible to have a, you know, morally praiseworthy <laughs> uh, or, or even well-intentioned uh, plutocrat? Unlikely. And you, you, deeply unlikely to the point of impossible, <laughs> literally counterfactual. Like, like it's not, it's not a plausible thing because the act of doing the one, the act of gaining the wealth itself, which then leads to the power, entails a great deal of evil. Whereas the aristocrat, well, the evil could have been done generations ago, uh, which is not to say that they won't continue to do evil, but they haven't necessarily already done it in order to get to where they are. It's deeply unlikely, yeah. but it isn't definitionally impossible the way it is for the plutocrat. And this is that Scaramouche conundrum, which is to say that like, well, certainly an aristocracy is not particularly good, but we shouldn't necessarily be deluded into thinking that a plutocracy is significantly all that better. I, and that's, I think, looking at Twitchell, where Victor could have been like an all right-ish dude, you know? Like, it's a shame that he isn't and he wasn't. But Twitchell is like, I am so rich, but I want to be king. You know, he's, <laughs> is it possible for him to be good? I mean, he literally murders someone in the story for even questioning him in in his company, you know? I don't see a dead body. She just disappears through a trap door. Ah, yes. Well, I'm assuming that's who you're referring to. Also, we can think of that as a fantasy, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> True. I cannot believe I'm defending Twitchell, but he does come around in the end. And when Frosty is crowned king... He's kind of like, okay, I gotcha. And stops this evil summer weed stuff and decides to sell like winter gear instead. 
I guess, but so I think that's him still chasing like his business empire, right? Oh, absolutely. But I think the show wants us to see him as redeemed. I guess. And I guess, hypothetically, being redeemed by Frosty would make by Christ. Frosty more of a Christ figure. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but I want to wrap it back even further and kind of point to Frosty being crowned king in the end mm-hmm. as both trying to address the idea of like, can there be a good king? Uh, and that our desire for a good king is part of the same flaw as expecting or hoping that somehow Mother Nature will save us, like the cherry orchard. I feel like you're trying to turn the end of Frosty Returns, which the feel-good happy end, into kind of a an ominous, you know, little quandary there. So if we, like, zoom back out a little bit. Yeah. Thinking about Frosty as similar to the being. The being is not a Christ figure. Ooh, ooh, or is he? <laughs> oh, hold on. Okay. Juliet. Uh-huh. Is... The being perhaps a Christ child figure rather than a Christ savior figure, you know, coming into this world without the the normal means and the normal sin. Yeah, I mean, immaculate conception. See, with Frosty, only if you consider Mother Nature a virgin, which I, I do. So <laughs> Frosty also. So given that the being was also not born, could you say that the being is also like uniquely born without original sin in that way like this fantastic possibility this opportunity for something good to potentially happen i'd say the book is implying that the being's creation is the original sin or an original sin for the an original sin. yeah yeah i don't think we're supposed to think the being's existence is a is a net positive Unlike Frosty the Snowman. Uh, Yay! So what's one thing, having looked at Frosty the Snowman as a song, Frankenstein as a story, and Frosty Returns as a special, what's one takeaway that you'd want to, to come away from this series of episodes with? We talked about empathy in our first episode. And we've been talking a lot about climate change in this episode. Um, I think if we if we go back to that practice and hard work versus the easy shortcuts binary that you set up earlier, mm-hmm. it, I don't know, it makes me think about how empathy itself is something that requires the hard work and the practice. There's not necessarily a shortcut to feeling empathy for other people it's it's kind of something that given our society you you have to work at and make sure you go out of your way to do it's also i think inherently human but living in a society that wants you to take all these shortcuts and live in the moment and not consider the long-term implications is very much at odds with having empathy for the world as a whole and trying to learn and reduce harm where you can with the the people you don't see that are harmed either now or in the future by some of the shortcuts we take. I think that's a great way of thinking about it. And I think, you know, one of the overwhelming feelings that we felt reading Frankenstein was 
as you said, of, of empathy, of this kind of seeing Frankenstein and <laughs> seeing the being and how much he's trying to know and get to know and understand and connect with others and seeing Holly and her desire to connect with others and seeing Frankenstein and his ability to help people connect. Sorry. And seeing Frosty the snowman and his ability to help people connect. What a slip of the tongue there. Imagine if Frosty the snowman could have appeared in Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. I mean, in Frosty Returns, he manages to bring Holly into a wholesome, happy sleigh ride with Mr. Twitchell, of all people. Mm-hmm. Like, Mr. Twitchell, the villain, the monster of Frosty Returns. Holly finds empathy and invites him to join her, her like royal sleigh ride after Frosty gets crowned king. Imagine if Frankenstein had had that. What a different ending that could have been. Which I wonder then, if Victor Frankenstein had anything wrong in his life at all, uh-huh. if the being could have been like an intercessor to help. But instead, Victor has no problem going on. And therefore must kind of create a problem for himself. His problem isn't his internalized homophobia? (laughs) Well, with that, I'm going to play the outro music. Well, unfortunately, the cop of time is hollering stop on this episode. No notes. That was perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to I'll Be Pod for Castmas. I'm Juliet. You can find me on the internet at at Folly on co-host and at Folly Persist on Tumblr. I'm Catherine. Uh, you don't need to find me. However, if you would like to follow I'll Be Pod for Castmas, Juliet can tell you how. You can find the show at, at Christmas on co-host and wherever podcasts are found. At the end of the year here, I'd like to shout out a few other podcasts that really inspired the work that we do here, including ranged touch shows like Game Study Study Buddies and Homestuck Made This World and other shows on the Moonshot Network, like The Podcast Minds and The Maniculum. A huge thank you to The Moonshot Network for hosting us. Absolutely. Iowa Podcastness is brought to you by The Moonshot Network. And you can even support us at patreon.com slash moonshotnetwork. Yay. Don't be a Mr. Twitchell. If you support The Moonshot Network on Patreon... You can get additional I'll Be Pod for Castmas content, like a clapcast full of extra notes and jokes that didn't quite make the cut into this one. <laughs> we'll be back next July mm. for more I'll Be Pod for Castmas. Christmas in July. Looking forward to it. But until next time, yeah. happy Castmas to all. And to all. 
a pod night. My name's Max Newland. My friends and I love anime, but you don't have to take my word for it. Hello, my name is Max Kostrak, and I have a confession today. I do love anime. Hey there, my name is Stevie Matos, and I love anime like I love yogurt parfaits. I watch it, I engage with it, and I think about it a lot. Give me a good bed of mechs sprinkled with some harem anime, a slice of life, and some little dabs of a sports anime. Let's go. Mm. Now doesn't that sound delicious? Join us every Monday at the After School Anime Club, a podcast where we play fun games and talk through the anime classics of the 90s and 2000s. That's the After School Anime Club, available now on your podcatcher of choice. So what do you think is the main difference between Frosty the Snowman, the the original special, and 1992's Frosty Returns? That's a great question. Uh, So the original was set in 1969, and that one's really located in a city, whereas the 92 one is very much in the suburbs. I mean, in the opening song, there's a reference to how this town is perfect because there's a lot of places to park your car. Right? Uh, Everyone has their own little, like, solo house that you have to to shovel by yourself. Everyone's, like, piling up the snow. You've got this, like, upper Midwest sort of feeling. Yeah. Uh, But... Which is also not just, like, a transmission transposition of place but also a transposition of time of this like suburbanification of you know the united states and how that affects how we interact with our geography and our climate yeah well it's a little strange because frosty returns has this sort of sci-fi element of the the spray can that can make snow Mm -hmm. like magically disappear which it gives it this almost futuristic vibe, which like almost implies that the suburbs are just like this sort of normal backdrop, this inevitable, like this is the status quo, and then we're going to add this magical layer into it to make it interesting. But mm-hmm. like the suburb as a default kind of weirded me out. That's a great answer, but it wasn't the one I'm looking for. Ah, do I get a, did I fail? <laughs> The right answer yes. is that Frosty Returns has chili dogs. What was the question again? <laughs> What's the big difference between Frosty the Snowman and the original? <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm sorry. Right.